have a seat. Good morning again, Coastal. Uh, my name is Joey. As Nate said, I'm one of the pastors here at Coastal. So if you're a guest with us, welcome. We are uh, glad you're here to join us in worship this Lord's Day. Uh, we have been going at a lightning speed pace through the book of Genesis, or at least this part of the book of Genesis. And this has been a series we've been doing over the course of a couple of years. And so this is uh, our aim is to kind of finish up the book this year. And, uh, and so that has required of us, um, uh, we've had to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And so last week, I think um, David covered uh, three chapters, right? And, uh, and so we, uh, we did that at both campuses. And, and this week, we're going to try to cover um, two chapters uh, together. And as I was preparing for this, I realized that um, there's no way to preach this amount of material in um, the three hours I've been allotted to preach to you this morning. And so I'm just joking. So uh, I'm going to intentionally neglect some of our text this morning. I'm just going to trust that you're following along. We provided for you this, just this uh, reading companion uh, that we're hoping that you're kind of maybe doing that in family devotions, doing that uh, on your own. And so you're able to just read through some of the texts that we're not able to give as much attention to as we would like. Um, and so this morning, the way that I'm going to tackle the sermon, and by the way, we're in Genesis chapters 40 and 41. But the way I'm going to tackle the sermon this morning is by not reading chapter 40, and I'm only going to read the first 16 verses of chapter 41. And the reason I'm only going to read the first 16 verses is because in chapter 41, uh, we're given the same account in that chapter three times. And so we get the narrator's point of view, who uh, the narrator, as you know, was Moses. Then we get Pharaoh's account um, of his dream, which is some of what we're going to be covering. And then we see Joseph come on the scene, and, uh, and we get Joseph, Joseph's account of Pharaoh's dream. And so uh, last week, we started uh, with the life of Joseph, and we're kind of moving through that uh, together this morning. And so, so I'm going to read the first 16 chapters of chapter 41, and then I'll pray, and then I'm going to kind of just quickly summarize for you chapters, where, where the ground that we've covered from last week uh, to today, because I think that that all together is going to lay the sufficient groundwork for our sermon this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 41, starting with verse 1 here, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, he wrote this, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams. There was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, the servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit who um, allows us to have the eyes to see your word as you intend it to be seen. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would, um, Lord, use my mouth to proclaim your word, God. And so, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come here together and worship you as a corporate body in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are the, the first 16 verses of chapter 41. And they really, like I said, they set the stage for the rest of the sermon this morning. Uh, chapter 41, it takes place two years after chapter 40, where Joseph meets the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and interprets their dreams for them. Okay, so that's what's going on in chapter 40. Okay, chapter 40 happened sometime after the text that you covered last week with Pastor David. So Potiphar, um, we saw last week that he lied, uh, Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph. And between the sometime after and the two whole years, it's pretty safe to say that Joseph spent a pretty good amount of time in prison. In two whole years after he interprets dreams for both the cupbearer and the baker, our text this morning says that the cupbearer remembered. This this puts Joseph's enslavement at a total of around 13 years. He was taken into slavery when he was a teenager at the age of 17, is what your text last week said, and he's now at this point in time, he's 30 years old. Now, I don't want this to be to be lost on us because we know the whole story of Joseph, right? If we've been in church life for any length of time, we kind of know the trajectory of Joseph's life, and, and it can be really easy for us to bring all that context with us when we're, we're approaching this passage. But I want us to think a, a, a little bit more this morning about where we find ourselves in this particular story. Joseph's entire life, his whole life, has been building to this particular moment. Right? He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. 
He was framed by, by Potiphar's wife because he was righteous and he wouldn't sleep with her. He was thrown into prison for a significant amount of time. After some time, Pharaoh disciplines two chief officers, a baker and a cupbearer. And these chief officers, they, they have dreams. And, and these dreams were so impactful. And if I had time, I'd go to chapter 40 and read it to you. But these dreams were so impactful that they, it troubled the, the cupbearer and the baker. And Joseph looks at him and he says, why are you sad? And I'm thinking, well, they're sad because they're in prison. That's not like a really stupid question, but that's, that's, not, that's, not, what, that's not the case here. They said, we, we have these dreams and there's no one here to interpret them. And so Joseph, he interprets the dreams. God interprets the dreams rather through Joseph. And Joseph gives the cupbearer the favorable interpretation as God intends. And then he tells the, the baker, you're going to be hung. And uh, he tells the cupbearer, remember me. Remember that the Lord interpreted this dream and tell Pharaoh about it when you're restored to your office. And the cupbearer, he doesn't tell Pharaoh right away about Joseph. He forgets about Joseph. So two years pass. Pharaoh has a dream. It needs to be interpreted. This jogs the memory of the cupbearer, and he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. So Joseph, he's been in slavery for 13 years, and now... He has an audience with Pharaoh. He has an audience with Pharaoh. This prisoner now has an appointment with the ruler of Egypt. Do you see God's hand of providence just guiding Joseph over 13 grueling years? Right? Think about the, the underdog films that, that we all pay, to see, pay money to see and that we all love, right? Underdog films... They're not telling a new story, are they? They're, they're kind of plagiarizing the Bible, right? These stories are as old as the Bible. But unlike underdog films, we know that there's nothing inherently great in Joseph that grants him an audience with Pharaoh, right? A biblical perspective tells us that it's God's sovereign hand, right? It's his sovereign, invisible hand that grants Joseph an audience with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh. And so if you're taking notes, I'd have you jot this down. God accomplishes his will in ways that don't make sense according to worldly standards. God accomplishes his will in ways that don't make sense to worldly standards. God, he uses a righteous teenager who is hated by his brothers and grows up as a slave to accomplish his purpose. Right? All this suffering that Joseph experienced, is experiencing, is exactly where the Lord wants him to be. It's exactly where the Lord wants him to be. This man, Joseph, right? this unlikely hero, lowercase h, in his circumstances should prohibit him from rising to power in the way that he does. Now, let's keep thinking about that for just a moment because all of Scripture is cyclical. Okay, what I mean by that is that, that Scripture is telling us the same story over and over and over again. 
And, and as Scripture is telling us this same story over and over and over again, it's building with anticipation. And I'll talk about this more in a little bit. But, but when we're reading our Old Testaments and we're gradually moving toward the New Testament, we're getting a broader and broader and broader perspective as we see this same story told over and over again. When we read Scripture and when Scripture's preached with you, what we should be walking away with is our having our thoughts lifted toward Christ Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of God. And we see his passage, and I'm going to demonstrate this to you this morning. We see, we see the story of Christ even in our passage this morning. For example, Joseph, he was hated by his brothers. Listen to the Apostle John's words about Jesus in, in John chapter 7, verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Our Savior, for a season, was not even accepted by his own brothers, his brothers who knew him best. Even more than that, both Joseph and Jesus, they came from unlikely places, right? Joseph rose to power out of slavery, out of prison. That's not supposed to happen, right? It's very unlikely for it to happen. And Jesus, he came from Nazareth. And you remember what folks said about Nazareth, right? The Apostle John, chapter 1, 46 says, captures Nathaniel's words, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? And Philip responds to him, come and see. Listen, God doesn't use the, the world standards. He doesn't. Right? This, is the one, this is one of the reasons why Christ Jesus was rejected, right? The religious leaders of the day, they believed that the, the, the Messiah was going to come as this, as this great political power, right? And when they thought of the Messiah, they thought of prestige and power and such a cheap, shallow, just materialistic, earthy way. And it only showcased that, that they didn't really know their Bibles. These religious leaders who claimed to have all this uh, spiritual superiority, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't read their Bibles with, with the Holy Spirit illuminating God's Word to them. Because if they, if they knew their Bibles well, they would, knew, they would know what the prophet Isaiah had prophesied about the Messiah before he even came. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, he says, he, speaking about the coming Messiah, speaking about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. You see, the Old Testament has been preparing us to have eyes for Christ Jesus. Been preparing us to have eyes for Christ Jesus. Now, Joseph, in the account of his life, is historical, and we need to recognize it as such and preach about it as such, but there's something so much bigger than Joseph 
going on in our text. Something so much bigger than Joseph. As Christians, when we read Joseph, our minds need to be lifted toward Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, as the title of your sermon says in your handout, Jesus Christ is the greater Joseph. He is the greater Joseph. And the whole reason God spoke, and we have a Bible, and we have records of historical accounts like Joseph, is because the Scripture is building toward Jesus. The Scripture's building toward Jesus. Do you see that this morning? Do you have eyes for Jesus this morning? Like Joseph, Jesus was despised. He was rejected. Like Joseph carried sorrows and grief for his entire life. Jesus lived in the shadow of the cross his entire life on earth. Jesus lived with the burden of our sin his entire life, his entire life on earth. And this was required of Jesus by the Father. This was the method God ordained before the foundation of the world to redeem a people to himself. Jesus, he rescued people through his humiliation. He rescued people through his humiliation. And with Joseph, we see this foreshadowing of that, right? We see, if you will, kind of this this micro story of the the macro plan of redemption. And I want to spend the rest of the time this morning just working through how it is that we see that. And so I really just have two points for you this morning. And by the way, you're welcome. I looked at Sean's sermon. He has like six points. And so so two points. We're just going to spend the rest of the time teasing out point two together. But if you you haven't already picked up on the fact that Joseph is this foreshadowing of Christ, we need to see that. He's a, Joseph, if you're taking notes, is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And when I say that Joseph is a type of Christ, I'm not saying that Joseph is Christ or that Joseph is sinless or that Joseph is deity. That would be blasphemous because Joseph was a sinful person like the rest of us, right? But what I'm saying is that God intended the trajectory of Joseph's life to tell us something about Jesus. We should look to Joseph and it should remind us of Christ Jesus, right? Again, we see that micro story of redemption in the life of Joseph. And we we see that in the lives of other men uh, in scripture too. We see that in the lives of men like Noah or Moses or David, just to name a few. Um, And just as a, a little bit of a side note, it could be a good exercise for you as Uh, as Christians, as Christian husbands and wives, Christian parents, spend some time even this Lord's Day afternoon going through some of these stories, Noah, Moses, David, and and talk with your kids or talk with your spouse or talk with some friends about how, how it is that those historical accounts can help us to think clear about Christ. Look at the parallels there. It would be a good exercise to do to just demonstrate the continuity of the Old and the New Testament. Let's parallel Joseph and Jesus a a bit more, if you're taking notes. Both Joseph and Jesus, they were interpreters. They were interpreters. Genesis 41, the first part of verse 13, we have the cupbearer saying this, and as he, speaking of Joseph, interpreted to us, so it came about. Okay, by the power of God, Joseph interpreted dreams. 
right? That's how Joseph got out of prison. That's how Joseph rose to being this political uh, power in the first place. And Pharaoh, he has two dreams that are really one dream, okay? And he's at a loss for what they mean, but he knows that they mean something very important. So God grants Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Right? And, and if you know the story, you know that the interpretation is that there is time of plenty, and then seven years of plenty, there's going to be seven years of famine. And Joseph has a good plan in mind to help Pharaoh endure and even his kingdom uh, thrive in the midst of the famine. And in the same way that Joseph is an interpreter of God's will, so too is Christ Jesus an interpreter of God's will. Jesus interprets the scripture to the Jews plotting to kill him. And I'll just give you this one, John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. The apostle John documents what Jesus says. Jesus says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here, we have Jesus Christ interpreting the Old Testament to these Jewish religious leaders, right? He's telling them that the Old Testament is about him. The Old Testament's about him. Again, just as Joseph made God's will known to Pharaoh through interpretation, so Jesus is making God's will known by interpreting the Old Testament for us. And as a side note, this is why this is why you should read and know your Old Testament. Right? You can't understand the New Testament unless you're growing in your understanding of the Old Testament. Right? Both the Old and the New Testament are about Jesus Christ. They're about Jesus Christ. So if you want to know Jesus more, read both Testaments. There no, there's no discontinuity between the two. They're in perfect harmony. They support one another. They do not stand on their own. Think of, of some of your favorite music. Think of some of your favorite songs, right? A good song builds at the perfect pace, doesn't it? Right? The, the perfect tempo, not too fast, not too slow. It's just the right timing. Right? The beginning of a song is oftentimes a bit softer than the latter part of a song. There may be less instrumentation in that song, and gradually the song reveals more and more of its message. Additional instruments are added. Emotion builds. There's this crescendo at just the right time that makes all the pieces of the song make sense. Right? Scripture, Scripture's kind of like that. Right? As we begin the Old Testament, we see dimly and as we continue to read our perspective on God and the gospel, it grows more and more. I kind of think of it like a fan, if you will. And if we start right here at the Old Testament and we continue to persevere in the Old Testament, our perspective gets broader and broader and broader, and it culminates in crescendos, if you will, in the life, the death, the bodily and eternal resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Joseph and Jesus, they were interpreters making more of God's will known. And because of that, we can, we can truly know God. Secondly, if you're taking notes, Joseph and Jesus were focused on the Father. 
They were both focused on the Father. Joseph says to Pharaoh in Genesis 41, verse 16, he says, it's not in, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He says later in verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one, God has revealed. And then in verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Listen again to the words of John in John chapter 5. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Joseph, he brought glory to the Father through his righteous life and by giving him clear credit for the interpretation of his dreams to the pagan Pharaoh. Jesus, he claimed unity with the Father. He went as far as to say that he could do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Right now, Jesus, he experienced unity with the Father in a way that Joseph never experienced it because Jesus is God, right? Jesus is asserting his divinity in the Gospel of John. But you can see how Joseph's relationship with the Father paralleled Jesus's relationship with the Father. There was this intimacy, right? There was this commitment. There was this perseverance. There was this eagerness to speak of the Father. Glory was given to the Father. There was this unity in the Father's preordained plan and a willingness to execute that plan. So Joseph and Jesus, they were focused on the Father. Number three, the Spirit of God was evident in Joseph and in Jesus. The Spirit of God was evident in both Joseph and Jesus. Genesis 41, 38 through 39 Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. We see discernment and wisdom as fruits of the Spirit of God in the life of Joseph, right? Even this pagan Pharaoh acknowledged that the Spirit of God was with Joseph, all right? The third person of the Trinity living in the life of Joseph. And listen, a few, listen to these few passages about Jesus that, that the physician Luke penned. Luke records this about Jesus when he was young. It says, after three days, they, speaking of Mary and Joseph, found him, Jesus, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It sounds a lot like discernment and wisdom. It goes on in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke records later, Jesus returned okay, out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And we have Jesus again interpreting the book of Isaiah. Luke records this, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, given to Jesus. He unrolled it 
He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? The life and mission of Joseph was empowered by the Spirit of God. The life and mission of Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God. Right? But even, even more so in Christ. Right? And just as Jesus enjoyed unity, unity with the Father, so he enjoyed unity with the Spirit because God's a trinity. Next. Joseph ruled at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father. Joseph ruled at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father. Genesis 41, 40 through 44, Pharaoh says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. This is a crazy turn of event here, isn't it? God used Joseph's humiliation for the purpose of exalting him to a position by which every knee in Egypt would bow in submission and reverence to. Isn't that crazy? Right, he, Joseph became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Pharaoh, the text says he dressed him in fine linen, He gave him this royal jewelry to wear around his neck. He even gave him a signet ring from his own hand. And if we read further, Pharaoh even elevated Joseph's position by arranging a marriage with royalty. Again, Jesus, I mean, the Lord used Joseph's humiliation for the purpose of exalting him. Where should that take our minds toward? What New Testament text should we be thinking about in that? My mind goes right to Philippians 2, right? We think of the humiliation of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, but he made himself, speaking of Jesus, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That's the humiliation of the God-man. It's what happened in Christ's incarnation. It's Christ's humiliation. And thank God by, by his grace, the story doesn't end with Christ's humiliation. It says, Paul goes on, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Elsewhere, Scripture says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand Why God makes Christ's enemies his footstool. Right? Joseph was exalted to this place of authority over all the land that uh, over all the land of Egypt while he was living, Jesus's rule is so much greater than that. It's so much greater than that. We serve a savior whose kingdom has no end. His kingdom has no end. And according to scripture, Jesus is in a place of authority. Listen to Psalm 2, how it finds its fulfillment in Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Listen, Coastal. After Jesus's incarnation, his humiliation and his life and his death, and after his exaltation as we see in his bodily and eternal resurrection and his ascension, Jesus did not forget to ask the Father for the nations as his inheritance, right? He didn't forget to ask for the earth as his possession. Jesus is our risen, ruling, and reigning Savior. And when he returns in his second advent, it's not going to be like his first advent. He's going to return in his second advent, his second coming as the supreme judge and ruler, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his universal lordship. That's our Savior. Jesus reigns. We're not waiting for him to reign. He reigns and his reigning is his rightful inheritance. Finally, Joseph saved all the earth from physical death with bread. Jesus saves people from eternal death with bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Listen to these passages from Genesis 41. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he, Joseph, gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. On down in verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now listen to how the Apostle John documented some of Jesus' words. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And on down later, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread lives forever. Joseph, he offered bread to save the world from famine. Jesus offers himself freely to rescue us from eternal death. So this morning, we see in Genesis, all all over Genesis, we see this echo of the gospel. And we turn over to our New Testament and we see that Jesus tells us 
to come and feast on him. Right? He's our bread, and those that eat of him will never hunger again. Right? For those of you who aren't in Christ this morning, this invitation is for you. Right? Jesus says, stop eating the food that this world offers you, that leaves you empty and hungry and longing for more. Right? Feast on Christ. Feast on Christ. Turn from worthless foods and feast on your all-satisfying Savior. For my brothers and sisters here this morning, those of you who are in Christ, this invitation is for you. Right? We come to the Lord's Day each and every week to feast on Christ. Right? That's the purpose of our gathering, feasting on Christ every Lord's Day. And it sets the tone for feasting on Christ for the rest of the week. Right? This Lord's Day is this earthly picture of the banquet that Christ is preparing for us for all eternity. Jesus is our food. Right? Jesus is our portion. He alone satisfies every other food offered this side of eternity. It's bad for us. It makes us bloated. It makes us fat. It makes us lazy. And it makes us lustful for more. Feasting on Christ is the opposite of that. He satisfies us. He nourishes us. He gives us sufficient strength. He gives us rest. He gives us peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you, God, that all of Scripture points us to our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we confess, God, that we're a hungry people, God, that we need Christ Jesus, Lord, and we turn away from worthless foods that leave us empty and hungry for more. So thank you for Jesus. And I pray all this in his name.